everyone, I'm back. It's Afro Pagan, and we're on to part four of Who Are We Really? Steps to Becoming Our God Selves. Now, we've already talked about um, Enki being Sa'am, Ptah, Osiris, and I'm going to throw in Kanum. Okay? And uh, also, I found another book, and it's written by Paul Simons, and it's called Legacy of the Black Gods in Time Before Time, coming forth from the Akashic Records. Now, uh, he has been able to meditate to the point where he can go into the Akashic Records or quantum field or quantum network and download information. And most of this book is a download from the Akashic Records, but he also cites other authors like Helena Blavatsky and Dr. York and others. The reason why I bought this book is because one writer or scribe who claims to have channeled information about the creation of the universe and the different types of beings who inhabited the earth before humans came along, which was incredibly detailed. I'm talking about Ashiana Dean. Her work is incredibly detailed and admirable, but she takes a negative stance when it comes to the guardians, meaning Sa'am, Enki, Aset, and Jehudi, or Toth. And that didn't sit well with me at all. And I'll probably tell you why it didn't sit well with me later. But I want to get into this book. So we talked about um, Kwame Adapa's The Guardians and how Enki, Sa'am, or Asar, or Osiris, and Aset Isis, or Se'et, and um, Jehudi, or Toth, were one of the main guardians, one of the three who stayed behind while the others left. They stayed behind to help humans. Anything wrong with that? I don't think so. But Ashiana Dean swears up and down that they're evil and they caused all the drama. I, I beg to differ. She's also coming from a different ideology. So anyway, let's get into it. I'm going to start with chapter five, the Polarian and Hyperborean eras. I'm sure you all have heard of Polarian, Hyperborea, Boreans, and all that. And I'm still trying to grasp it, but I thought I would share this book with you because again it comes from an afrocentric perspective and that is important if you are of european descent and the afrocentric perspective doesn't jive with you there are people like ashiana dean who she wrote a book in super detail check her out okay Chapter 5, The Polarian and Hyperborean Eras. So, Paul Simon says, There is a time before time, prior to the enclosed Garden of Eden, as taught by Dr. York, where a planet existed in the space we now occupy as planet Earth. The atmospheric conditions and vibrational tides of that planet were profoundly different to that of the current Earth. The color would have been predominantly green rather than the blue we would have, excuse me, we now know. And so it was that green 
was the color of its inhabitants, reptilians, mammals, and indeed men. The continents would have appeared a little more golden in color rather than the darker shades that they would appear to be now as seen from space when approaching Earth. We see this green in depictions of men and the gods, quote-unquote, when we observe the Commission sketches of the Netter Asar, for instance, who was also present during the latter times mentioned. This time period and this planet, says Dr. York, is referred to as Terra. And the theos- theosophical doctrine of Blavatsky, Helena Blavatsky, refers, refers to this era of time as the Lemurian era. Therefore, each of the seven evolutionary stages or root races of mankind within this globe would have a slightly lower and denser experience of the physical reality. Terra existed then at a much higher and quicker vibration. Again, for convenience, we can say it existed in another dimension. Dimension in this context refers to a place rather than a state of advancement from our current point of view. So when talking about higher or lower dimensions, faster or slower vibrations, it may not imply either better or worse respectively. It simply means a place that is a little different. But Terra occupied the same space that Earth now occupies. So Earth, as we know it, did not exist then meaning the Lemurians of Terra, or Terrans, existed in higher dimensions, and so Earth did not exist to them. The Aetherians of Terra, which are the Cyclopean intelligence, um, and I read in the book Cyclopean intelligence refers to the ethereal beings who had a prominent third eye. And when you hear the word Cyclopean, what immediately comes to mind? Cyclops. So the Greeks, they mm, bastardized that, turning it, turning these beings who had a prominent third eye or a well-working third eye. It's what they use primarily to see, to navigate. Uh, turned them into monsters who had no brain and walked around with clubs wanting to eat people. Well, what can you do? Anyway, back to the story. I'm going to repeat that sentence. The Aetherians of Terra, which are the Cyclopean intelligences, the angelic hosts that governed the Lemurians, pondered at length whether they would manifest a planet at a slower vibration in the third dimension, where we are now, which is to be denser than where the Terrans were at, or to allow them to continue to create instantaneously in their own abode. The Aetherians wanted for individuals who had suffered a lowering of divinity to undergo certain lessons. In order for them to be reinitiated into the higher realms, after many previous considerations, it had become evident that Terra was too fast a vibratory rate for this to happen. So it was decided that what we now experience as Earth would be manifested. This would then allow for the fallen beings to enter a place of rehabilitation, so to say, learn their lessons at a slower pace and then return home upon graduation, which is where we're headed. As an analogy, Terra produced a photocopied version of itself, manifesting it at a slower vibratory rate. Earth was thus born. It became a place of intergalactic, interdimensional schooling. If we were to desire experience of Terra in our current vibratory state, it is something we have difficulty filtering through our consciousness screen. The spaces between the molecules of Terra are much further apart than on Earth, and its vibration as stated is much quicker. We simply could not grasp, touch, or fathom it. But the, by the elements or mo- molecules of the beings of Terra being much further apart than ours, they would, 
in effect appear to be giants to us. This is how it is with beings of higher light. Manifestation in 3D for them is a case of slowing their vibrational rates such that the molecules of their bodies come closer together. As this happens, the cohesion of matter takes place around their bodies. The elements of 3D tack on to the counterpart elements of their etheric bodies and they consequently reduce in size, height, etc. The etheric engineers of the latter, Terra, the black melanite gods of chaos. Did you get that? Black melanite gods of chaos who could transfer their energies to earth began to create what we now know as man or mankind in a fashion as described. Some of these beings, according to Dr. York and Dr. Delbert Blair, may he rest in peace and power, still live inside the earth and at a slightly higher vibration or as some metaphysical scientists might say, one of Earth's overtones. The abode of these engineers has come to be known today as Shambhala. We looked at this briefly in part one of chapter three, and I'm going to get into this book, really get into this book, because it's fascinating. And then we'll go back to the guardians, but I think this gives a, a much more metaphysical view of how Earth and its inhabitants came to be. So, okay, let's get back to the book. The scientists transferred their bodies through an interdimensional ship, their etherically manifested Merkaba, they combined their bodies into one matrix of energy, created the vehicle of ascension to descend in this case, and then differentiated into 144,000 entities in number. There is no species of human on earth today who cannot trace their roots back to this group of 144,000. Now, on YouTube, all these star seeds talk about 144,000. We need 144,000 star seeds to help the planet ascend. Where did they get this number from? Where did it appear? So, like I said, star seeds who are on YouTube, star seeds of European descent. They have their own paradigm. Not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying it's their own paradigm. Okay. Turning the page. The creation of mankind on earth by these entities was not a casual act. It had taken hundreds of thousands of years of experimenting. In short, man and mankind are the result of interbreeding of the Terrans, Lumerians, and beings from Sirius who came in starship, starships such as the mysterious Nibiru. According to Dr. York, there are a number of genetic upgrades or modifications that are still pending to be carried out on mankind by the Nibirians due to certain mental and spiritual inconsistencies. The creation of mankind has therefore been categorized into specific projects. These are the Nun, the Dolphin, the Rainbow, and the Adama projects. Adama, Adam. Okay. Let's talk about the Nun project. What is this mystic primordial substance Mu, which is sometimes used as one of the names for Lemuria? In the book of Genesis, at the beginning of the first chapter, it appears to be equivalent to the face of the waters and is said to have been incubated by the Spirit of God. Job chapter 26 verse 5 makes mention that dead things are formed from under the waters and inhabitants thereof, which could also be referred to as Mu. In the original text, as taught by Dr. York and written in the book Isis Unveiled by Helena Blavatsky, instead of dead things, it is written dead Raphaim. 
giants or mighty primitive men from whom evolution may one day trace our present day races. In the Kamishan mysteries, Ra, the solar god, is represented as being born out of chaotic waters of noon. Ra meaning Marduk Ra. In the Scandinavian Edas, the honeydew, the food of the gods and of the creative busy bee, falls during the shadow hours, night, when the atmosphere is impregnated with humidity. And in the northern mythologies, the waters are presented as a passive principle of creation from out of which the creation of the universe takes place. This dew is the astral light in one of its combinations and processes or forms with creative as well as destructive properties. Polarity, create, destruct. Okay. In the Chaldean legend of Berosus, Oannes, or dragon, the fish man, whilst instructing the people, shows the infant world created out of water and all things originating from this prima materia. Moses teaches that only earth and water can bring about a living soul, and we read in the scriptures that herbs could not grow until the eternal caused it to reign upon earth. In the Mayan Popol Vuh, man is created out of mud or clay, terra glaze, taken from under the water. In the Hindu text, Brahma creates Lomas, the great Muni, or first man, seated on his lotus only after having called into being spirits who thus enjoyed among mortals a priority of existence and creates Muni, man, out of water, air, and earth. Today's alchemists claim that primordial or pre-Adamic earth when reduced to its first substance in its second stage of transformation is like clear water, the first being alkahest, a word used to denote the menstruum or universal solvent that is capable of reducing all things. This primordial substance, Mu, is said to contain within itself the essence of all that goes to make up man. It has not only all the elements of his physical being, but even the breath of life itself in a latent state, ready to be awakened. This it derives from the incubation of the spirit of God upon the face of the waters. Chaos, in fact, this substance is chaos itself. Dr. York's Nuwaubu, when synchronized with Blavatsky's secret doctrine with respect to the few par paragraphs above, give us the following. The Kamishan cosmology of the creation of Atun, Atun and Amun, the triad deities of Ra, symbolizes the tri-star system of Iliun, Sirius. The project of Noon within this context is about the seeding of an early Akashic memory of Earth, Tiwawat, 150 to 130 million years ago, known as the Polarian Epoch the time of the first root race of mankind. This is the original or primary creation by way of the nine ether forces of the universe. These first beings were etheric or astral in nature. How's that so far? That is a giant mouthful It's some serious metaphysical stuff. And I'm still wrapping my head around it. But anyway, let's get into it more. The sperm or mentally generated genetic information of Atum and Amun was used in this experiment. Hence why we often alternately see the illustration of the Enneads, the nine beings of creation, being headed by either Atum or Amun. The semen or DNA of both these deities was transported from Sirius to Tiwawat for the seeding of this planet. Again, symbolically remembering that all of this happened in the etheric realms. The saga also narrates that Ra was born out of the chaotic waters of Nun. Nun, in this case, represents the primordial essence of the black gods of chaos, the 
undifferentiated essence of nine ether. As above, so below. So if you can conceptualize the celestial man, or noon, with his lymphatic and circulatory systems, you will see where chaos begins. When the seminal fluids are ejaculated and released from his loins into his consort Nunet, which bred Atum, one of the triad expressions of Ra, symbolically yet again, you can see how a meteorite shower originating from a big bang in Sirius could metaphorically represent millions of sperm cells bombarding the celestial egg. Tiawawat, which was laid by Netter Geb, the cackler. This meteorite shower would therefore have contained all the necessary elements or ingredients to germinate and sustain life in any part of the universe. Life thus brings order out of chaos. Ra is born, the sun, light, the center of our matrix ovum. Wow. Okay, and now we go on to the dolphin project. The following on from the nun project, the dolphin project provides a better conceptualization of the actual transportation of the semen of Atum and Amun. This project involved the transportation of the semen within the womb of the dolphin to Tiawawat, from which mankind would evolve. This is a science known today as in vitro fertilization, and scientists have discovered today that the gene of the human being is closer to the dolphin than any other animal on our planet, or plan ET. The nun aspect of the process is involutionary. The actual physical or third dimensional re representation of man did not manifest until the evolutionary cycles of the universe began, which was between the Hyperborean, 35 to 20 million years ago, and Lemurian, 17 to 14 million years ago, epochs. The subsequent second and third root races of mankind, the secret doctrine states it was 18 million years ago when the transformation of their fiery beings into a more physical form began on the supercontinent Gonwanalan or Ganawa, which later paved the way for the Lemurian epoch. Ooh. Okay. One more paragraph, then we'll take a commercial break. Prior to this, the first emergence of the seeded genetic information on this planet was a fungi and algae in the seas or waters of Tiamat known as the Maiden of Life. Later, when the conditions were right, the Neturu returned in their starships to upgrade the evolutionary process in order to breed mortals. Wow. Okay. Let's have a commercial break, and then we will continue on. This is kind of exciting. See you in a moment. And riding, mankind would jump ahead of his otherwise normal course of evolution. So Paul Simon says, Dr. York explains that a certain number of Homo erectus individuals were actually abducted and taken to Mars where laboratories were erected to carry out this genetic upgrading experiment. These laboratories are called Shimti in the Sumerian texts and NASA space probes have cited and confirmed that an Egyptian type city or cities exist in ruins on Mars. This includes the famous Sidonia featuring a giant face resembling Zakar, the last atom of the Atlantean epoch. The name Sidonia is reflective of one of the 12 tribes of Canaan, Sidon. This confirms that the establishments of today, including NASA, are well aware of these ancient experiments given that they have named one of these ancient Martian cities as Sidonia. Hmm. Well, well, well. When I first saw the face on Mars, I jumped like a jump scare when you're watching a horror movie. 
And not that I was horrified, I was just shocked and amazed. Really, my reaction was, holy fuck. (laughs) Yes, as you can hear, I have a mouth. What can I say? Anyway, back to this, back to the book. This stage of the Adama project goes back some 450,000 years, says Zachariah Sitchin in his books, Genesis Revisited and the Twelfth Planet, which was somewhere between the going out of the Atlantean Epoch and the rising of the Aryan Epoch. The main purpose of this aspect of the experiments was to synthetically initiate Christ consciousness in order to reestablish unity consciousness or unity memory. I like unity consciousness. The previous experiments had caused man and mankind to go completely out of balance as they were forced by the gods to jump from dream time memory to real time memory. These earlier experiments failed miserably. Everything just went crazy. Mankind ascended into a third dimension from the second, but ultimately with disastrous results. <sighs> well, yeah, I mean, look at what's going on today. Uh, can't even prosecute so-called cops for so-called accidentally killing a person, an innocent person as that. Disastrous results indeed. Okay, and let's go on to the next section. The Who Lived Before Adam and Eve story. One of the most endearing historical features of our planet is the continent Ganawa, also called Gondwana or Gondwanaland or Gondwana Land. The continent is also known as Pangaea to the Greek archaeologists of Earth's history. It was a composite continent made up of South America, Africa, Madagascar, and Antarctica, excuse me, India, and other parts of South Asia and Australia. At what time? It even included Florida and most of Southern Europe. Gondwanaland is named after the Upper Paleozoic and Mesozoic formations of the Gondwana district of central India, which display a number of shared geologic features, the Gondwana beds. In the late 19th century, on the basis of comparative geological evidence, the Austrian geologist Edward Seuss suggested that the continents of Africa, South America, Australia, and India were once once part of a single supercontinent, which he called Gondwanaland. Although the term Gondwanaland is not a very popularly documented one, the idea and concept it stands for is recognized and has been for thousands of years. Now, I've mentioned before in other podcasts that I think I feel I feel in my bones that the paradigm we had been fed forever, all Africans came from Africa, needs to shift. I mean, I have DNA from continents that I can't explain why how it ended up there in me when and how so I think these DNA companies uh, I think some of their information is suspect and certainly what I learned in school Although I had somewhat of a different education, I was taught African-American history from the jump, but no African history, that came later. But how certain DNA ended up in my bloodstream is like, I don't know how it got there. When, who had time, when, can't be explained. So some paradigm shifting has to occur there. All the continents were one at 
a certain point in our planet's history. So, and the only people on the planet at one point were melanated people. And we did spread out to other parts. And then the continents drifted apart. And we ended up with all these oceans and seas. And it's something that we should take upon ourselves to investigate. Let's not be sheep and agree with everything we've been taught. Question. It's okay to question. You question, you learn, you investigate, you grow. So anyway, um, let's move on. The Pygmy and Watusi tribes. The earlier peoples of Earth were predominantly two-dimensional. They were the Dreamtime Unity Consciousness of 2D, particularly during the times of Lemuria. Lemuria had a very advanced culture and society. Much of its splendor was owed to the intervention and interpolation of the Black Gods. Woo! Black Gods! Those of polarity consciousness that came from Sirius, Andromeda, Orion, and Pleiades, and other areas of the galaxy. These extraterrestrial invaders brought their technological jargon along with them, of which in the eyes of the Earth people, their accoutrements were extremely advanced. Many of these beings became renowned as gods and goddesses to the clans of many ancient cultures. That was our mistake. Extraterrestrials are not gods. I mean, the ones who engineered our ancestors. They were not gods and they're still not gods. They were just creator beings. Extraterrestrials who created. That's it. Guardians who taught us how to take care of the planet and how to communicate, how to write. They were beings, not gods. Okay. Um, so doc, uh, not Dr. Paul Simons touches on the legacy of Nibiru. Now, um, personally speaking, I think Nibiru is back. Um, they are here and they are hanging out in the upper atmosphere, but they are here. I, that's just my opinion. But what is Nibiru? So Paul Simon says, Nibiru is the fourth dimensional starship of the Milky Way, Galaxy's Galactic Federation. Many different civilizations have representatives that live aboard it. It is a planet, a battle star, and a starship, all at the same time. It was the main peacekeeping force in the galaxy until 3,600 years ago and is a little over three times the size of Earth. Nibiru's main symbol is the eight-pointed star. It used to travel in the fifth dimension, but that changed when Marduk, grandson of Anu, the current ruler of Nibiru, was chosen by his grandfather to take command of the starship. As a result of this turn of events, members of the higher Nibiruan council decided to limit Nibiru's ability to use stargates. Now, Nibiru only has access to stargates in the fourth dimension. Oh, okay, so there's some trouble there. Nibiru remains humanity's trigger for awakening. When it appears to us, uncloaks and shows itself, it will bring about a universal shift in consciousness. 
mankind will then wake up to the fact that they are not alone in the universe and will begin to search for the reason and purpose behind this great planetoid ship. So, and here's a little um, insert here. The Vatican Secret Service has been following Nibiru's progress via a secret link to the little-known second Hubble telescope for some time now. It came into our solar system following the ship's disguised as Hale-Bopp Comet. Nibiru is the star wormwood of biblical revelation. Okay. You notice how 2020 has been crazy? I mean, we have asteroids, we have wildfires, we have crazy, intense earthquakes, we have upheavals, we have protests, um, we have unfortunate what we see as unfortunate, but was probably predestined. Yeah, I'm going to say it sacrifices of black bodies to wake us up. So Paul Simons goes on to say, it is at this time that the ancient knowledge suppressed by the religions of governments used in order to control the people will come to light. Mankind's true identity and the legacy of the black gods will be made known to them, and they will have the opportunity to embrace it on a global scale. Yeah, it's coming, y'all. It's coming. I mean, you could say we're already here. Marduk has since chosen to reunite with his estranged father Enki and grandfather Anu. Together they have formed a new set of agreements and the control of Nibiru has been returned to Anu. As Nibiru heads our way, its mission is to ensure the ascension of Earth and its people, all in keeping with the prime directive of non-interference in our free will. This means that Anu, as head of the 5D Nibiruan Council, together with Marduk of the 4D Council, the higher Nibiruan Councils, and the other Galactic Federation Councils, will assist mankind by using all the means at their disposal to achieve our goal of ascension. Marduk has chosen to integrate, which in this case means to accept the realization that the planet Earth cannot survive without us, humans. Yet, this does not mean that those under his command in the fourth dimension agree. He is dedicated to allowing the polarity integration game on Earth to play out without supporting one side over the other. In doing so, he is playing by the rules of the Prime Directive, like Star Trek. The Igigi of the 9D Council of Elders welcome this beloved one home. Nibiru is within our solar system and in orbit around our sun. Its current position is on the opposite side of the sun from Earth. Eventually, we shall meet as two ships passing in the night. Due to its massive size and even stronger magnetic grid, Nibiru's passing has been known to cause massive changes on Earth along with pole shifts. We're having a pole shift now. Dudes, we're having a pole shift now. These occurrences have been well documented in our ancient records. However, due to the fact that there are people on Earth today who are ready for spiritual graduation and ascension to the next level of awareness, 5D, Nibiru will take on its other primary role, which is that of a catalyst for planetary ascension, besides being a peacekeeping force in our galaxy. Okay, so you have all these other people, some of these star seeds light workers, whatever, who claim that Nibiru is evil. Um, they may have had issues in the past, sounds like they did, but evil? Mm, no, I don't think so. I mean, do you? Feel free to let me know what you think. I mean, I'm waiting for messages and, and you know, let's have a dialogue here. I, I don't think, I don't think the Nibiruans have it in for us. 
Nibiru assists planetary schools ready for graduation by being what you might call a double-edged sword. If the people of Earth wake up and see this magnificent force for what it is, then they will take advantage of its power and use it to move our planet beyond the frequency and destructive power of its magnetic field. <sighs> Let's move on to the next section, the people of Nibiru, because I am fascinated. And... Um, I'm just tired of Nibiru's evil, Nibiru this, Nibiru that. Like, the hell do you know? How do you know Nibiru is evil? There's such a... Um, <sighs> there's such a, a campaign to be afraid of the unknown or afraid of what we've never seen before. That's been one of our problems, I think. Anyway, let me keep going. The people of Nibiru. So Paul Simon says, this starship is not to be feared because the denizens have no desire to bring harm. The denizens aboard Nibiru do not see the current inhabitants of Earth any differently than they see any other epoch of beings ready for entry into the galactic neighborhood. Though Earth's ascension has major universal implications on one hand, on the other, it is just another routine graduation to the Federation members aboard Nibiru. The Nibiruans have done this many times for many planets and species of beings. One example would be the time they assisted a group of Andromedans and their planet. Though there were a few setbacks due to the fact that the Andromedans were an android race who had not yet acquired a full emotional body, the ascension and acceptance into the Galactic Federation did occur. The same procedures applied then as now. So as Nibiru flies through the star-studded space of our solar system, life on board the ship is the same as usual. They are aware <clears throat> excuse me, of Earth's ascension status and are providing the usual assistance. For example, they have placed objects near the surface of the sun to not only provide fuel for the ship to make the swing around the sun, but also to direct a portion of the intense solar flare activity that always accompanies a planetary ascension away from Earth. They accomplish this by sending their scout ships, which were cloaked by what is known to us as Comet Hale-Bopp or Comet Lee, ahead to determine the sun's status and report back information that enabled Nibiru to plan a course of action to protect Earth from the sun's activity. The comets themselves were carrying what Dr. York refers to the 24 elders. These beings are the many esoteric scholars of today, those that present wake-up call doctrines. Well, what do you know? What do you freaking know? Nibiru will continue to provide all the necessary protection our planet may need to complete its ascension process within the guidelines of the Universal Prime Directive or Divine Plan. When Nibiru is to become visible from Earth depends on when we are ready to accept its presence in our life. As a Galactic Federation starship, they are aware of the conflicts and problems that can arise when a planet is exposed to knowledge that its people are not ready to accept. I think we're ready. We had a, there was a sighting in New Jersey over the highway. I mean, New Jersey, over the highway in New Jersey, people got out of their cars to take pictures. Of course, the news said it was a blimp, but you know the news, they lie. Anyway. The gods or beings are aware that there are those currently in control of our planet who are attempting to manipulate the starship into uncloaking itself during a particular time and alignment of the planets. This too will not happen. The beings understand the fear that causes Earth's governments to want to use Nibiru as a means to frighten people into submission. 
Well, that's been happening for many, many years. Uh, Linda Howe Moulton, she's like afraid of Nibiru. And that's, that's the narrative that's been pushed. Anyway, they will not succeed since Nibiru is not a menace filled with beings that intend on the destruction or enslavement of Earth, as these individuals would and will have us believe, and surely also because Nibiru will not allow itself to be manipulated. Though it may be true that there may may be one or two small groups of beings on Nibiru who would wish to control Earth, they do not speak for the majority and are not in control of the starship. The massive uprising and takeover of Nibiru by Marduk is over, and those who wish to return to Nibiru's original purpose as a peacekeeping force are back in control. These small groups of resistance will create their own downfall through infighting. They will eventually render themselves harmless to us, but for now the majority will allow them to continue as they are part of Earth's ascension plan and therefore are playing the role of those who oppress us. Change does not occur without a catalyst. Freedom does not come without an oppressor. So Paul Simons goes on to say that Nibiru is here, just on the other side of the sun. When it does uncloak, we will most likely see it appear first in our southern skies. When this happens, is up to us. It could be as soon as 2030 or now. <laughs> For now, everything is as it should be. We are on track with our ascension and the gods look forward to welcoming us to the galactic neighborhood. I want to add something else from this book because I think this book is amazing and it uncovered so much about the history of our planet in a non-threatening, angry, coffee-induced way. All right. So Paul Simon says... And this is uh, from chapter six, the Lemurian era. And I'm on the section called the 144,000 entities of Ptah. Well, let's get into the 144,000 because that's a name that's been bandied about for the longest time now. And I had a synchronicity last week. I kept seeing 144. So something's up. So Paul Simon says in the first paragraph of 144,000 entities of Ptah, furthermore, the source had manifested itself in a similar fashion millions of years earlier by focusing itself through the planet's auric energy field to the second dimension as Ptah. Y'all know who Ptah is. He's uh, one of the creator gods from Memphis, Kemet. Ptah's blue. The Ptah energy differentiated itself into 144,000 entities or principles, only to be reunited within each and every human being. These 144,000 entities are, for lack of a better description, 144,000 atoms. Therefore, we have the original Adamites or Ptahites. These beings over time shifted further into the third and fourth dimensions after the bounce effect of 2D. Okay, there's that. But I want to say something about the beings who created us and seeded the planet. The black nations of the world today, the black Nations of the world today are the result of the crossbreeding between the Syrian as well as Orion black gods and the earlier Ptahites of Earth. This has created the modern day African. I repeat, the black nations of the world today are the result of the crossbreeding between the Syrian as well as Orion black gods and the earlier Ptahites of Earth. 
This has created the modern day African. And he goes on to say, the lighter skinned peoples of earth were predominantly created by later extraterrestrial interventions, such as with the beings from Pleiades. The Andromedans had an effect on our overall mental development. These four groups of extraterrestrials, also known as the Big Four, the Big Four, are the main groups that have had significant influences on our evolution as the Earth race. To cover all the interventions of all the other ETs that have, some, that have had some sort of influence would take us volumes of encyclopedias of writing. I would still love to see that or read that rather. So there you go. Syrians and Orions created us. All the melanated folk. And I mean deeply melanated folk. Okay. There you have it. And yes, I got black with this episode. And yeah. It felt good. Okay, so listen to this podcast over and over again because so, I dropped some gems via Paul Simmons, Simons, and he is amazing. Please buy his book. Buy it. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. Share the Guardians, Earth Humans, and Ascension by Kwame Adapa. Share it with your friends. I'm going to continue with Kwame Adapa in the next podcast. So bear in mind what I just uh, read. Carry it with you. There's no need to be afraid of Nibiru. They're here to help. They want us to ascend. All right. So this is Afro Pagan. This has been one of the best podcasts episodes ever. And I just started this podcast, but this was really good. And uh, I love both books. I really do. So please buy the books, help these authors out, shift your paradigm. Peace. <laughs>